Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Jacumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And today I'm joined once again by my co-host and co-pilot on these airwaves, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lizette here. She, her, Aya. Happy to be with you all again. It is episode 21. Woo! Every show is a milestone, Stephen. And we have a really special guest today, Rebecca Miner. Well, let's get it going. Welcome, everyone, once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. All right, Stephen, what's been going on in your world? Child, I've just been jacking myself up. Okay, so first, I'm calling myself a handyman, and my garage door one of the springs broke and I have like an old house built in like 1931, a detached two car garage and the right door, one of the springs broke. And I've been going to Home Depot, I've been going to Lowe's, I've been going to all these places and trying to DIY fix this damn garage door. So finally I ordered like a pair of springs from Amazon and they arrived the other day and I was like, ooh, I'm going to put these things up. And so as I go in and I'm fixing something, I go to grab something with my right hand and somehow just my ring finger and my middle finger grab the thing. And I went to pull child like a pain shot through my forearms, shot through my fingers. It was hurting me so bad that Nicole had to take me to the emergency room. And I had what is called a jersey pull or a jersey strain, which is when football players go to tackle somebody and they just grab the jersey and it's just those two fingers gets pulled away. And so I was telling everybody I was in an NFL game (laughs) and not that I went to pull something from my garage and hurt my fingers because it's just not quite as sexy. So yeah. Anywho, what else? I went to what I'm going to describe as a mafia wedding. (laughs) i was curious about this tell me my friends actually these are nicole's friends that i met that i now claim as my friends but they invited us to their wedding which we felt very special because a lot of folks that we knew that were mutual friends did not make the cut so we were like "Ooh, we special and we arrived at this wedding and you know it's a mafia wedding when cats are pre-gaming on the way to the wedding because they had these decked out limousine style tour bus type joints picking us up from the hotel and bringing us to the wedding venue. Pre-gaming in the buses. Got to the wedding. Champagne before the wedding. Wedding has live violinists, live pianists, drones following the 15-foot train. 10 bridesmaids, five groomsmen, 280 guests, black tie, evening wedding. From the wedding, which was about 20 minutes, cocktail hour. Cocktail hour had a bourbon station, had a meat carving station with leg of lamb, beef brisket, and a seafood station, and a pasta station, and a wine station, and another full service bar. And hors d'oeuvres after hors d'oeuvres after hors d'oeuvres. Like, top shelf everything. This was the cocktail reception. After the cocktail reception is the reception, where once again, they had, like, Madison Square Garden style visuals, sound system, (laughs) DJ, MC, again, lights, smoke machine, 
video screens. When I tell you the bridal party came out and a dude had a camera that was on the ground following them as they came in and you could see his view on the camera and the cutaways. And then they had full table, full food, full salad, bread, sticks, more wine, more liquor, open bar, all the things. We said all the things and everybody on the bride's side was Italian. And so the dad was like, you know, we love you. When I tell you, it was a mock. It was like straight up. You were saying it's like Godfather-ish. Straight up Godfather. So you're part of the family now. You're part of the family now. We love you. Nobody brought gifts. Everything was an envelope in a black box. There were no gifts. It It was all envelopes. That's how you know. Fancy. It was so fancy. And I'm not even done because after dinner, which was like they came and they took your order for dinner. You could have some steak. You could have some Chilean sea bass. You could oh have some uh, some other chicken something. And they came and, you know, everybody had their individual things, whatever. Afterwards, they didn't have just the cake. They had the cake plus a hallway of desserts. Oh, my gosh. A hallway of desserts. And then as you left, they gave you sandwiches. In case you were too drunk, <laughs> you needed to like put some carbs in the stomach. More food to soak up the food and the drink that you just had. Like I have never seen anything like that in my entire life. You literally made my wa- mouth water when you said Chilean sea bass. Like I was like, oh, kid, sounds it was delicious. It really was. It was some of the best food I have eaten in just so long. It was really just that good. It was such a good wedding. It was such a good wedding. It sounds incredible. It wasn't. Was Nicole like one day all of this? Absolutely not. <laughs> You're like, enjoy this. It's not happening. Like that is an intense wedding. That sounds like so fun. Was. was everybody crying? Was like the was there tons of speeches? So, I mean, these were young people, and so it was more about like partying and having a good time. During the ceremony, there was a prayer by one of her bridesmaids. One of their friends married them, so it wasn't even like a religious thing. And then at the reception. It like the dad gave a speech and you know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't, heavy. it was heavy on the partying and the drinking. Nice. That's what it was. And delicious um, food. And delicious food and lots of it and drinks all night long and the best liquor you could have all night long. Like I've seen, like I've seen the Godfather, you've seen all these Italian movies and they, they show you the wedding and just how ostentatious and over the top. That's exactly what it was. Ostentatious and over the top, but it was a really lovely wedding. Oh, I'm so excited you guys had fun and ate lots of good food and yes. a bourbon station sounds so no cool. Kidding. All of the things you can imagine. That was. So that's been my week. What's been going on with you? Um, I'm tired. So today I had to take my mom to the airport at like five in the morning oh my. Um, because she went to go visit my aunt Sandra in Colorado. Okay. So, you know dropped off the mom super early and you know like as you age it's harder to fall back asleep once you're woken up you can't go back to sleep yeah no you're just laying there i tried yeah i like ended up just like doing like daniel's driver's ed like signing him up for that and then like school his school stuff that i needed to do you know putting money on his lunch account those things i did all that 
And then, you know, advocacy, all the advocacy stuff. I know that people are like, you're in Arizona, it's a purple state. But, you know, the lobbies and Republicans are not giving up. They see an election coming up and they are just mad organizing and we're never prepared they're so sneaky and we're not as sneaky. So it's but just the thing like, is, so Lisa, are they sneaky? Or are they just because again, it's not it's nothing new. They're just organized. Right. They're just organized and really well funded. They are so well funded. And I think like, how do we get funding our way so that we're able to do like the same level of quality work to stop a lot of what's happening? I don't know if you saw the big Huff Post, the Huffington Post piece that came out that talked about like, you know. Paul Cruz and all of these experts that they've spent like just in 2023, they spent like $1.6 million on six quote unquote experts that aren't experts uh, to like testify on anti-trans legislation in their favor. I think about how disruptive legislative session is. And, you know, I once Daniel and I had to sit through Paul Cruz testimony one time. He spoke for like 45 minutes. And I was livid reading the HuffPost piece because I missed a whole day of work. Like Jose and I had to shut down our business. We had, luckily my sister lets us stay there because, or else we would be paying for a hotel to be up Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Daniel has to miss school. So like we lost out on a day of work. And like, here he was like flown in, taking the lunch, paid for his time. And he's just making everyone else's life miserable. So that kind of pissed me off thinking about it today. I saw a medium. Lucina hooked me up with this medium. And she was like, you need to prioritize joy. And I was like, yeah, that's what trans prom was about. Like, we need to prioritize joy. And so, like, what does that look like? And so Daniel and I have been having, like, these good conversations about, like, what is life beyond legislation every year? Yes, yes. Like, what does that look like? Like, yes, it's a part of our lives, but it isn't our whole life. And, like, how do we get out of that mindset of like this stressful thing is going to happen and like really kind of be purposeful because he's doing good. He's like happy. He has all kinds of crushes. He's at like Latinx (laughs) club right now, you know, like (laughs) he's, he's doing his life. And, and I'm like, you know, trying to think about like how we still are intentional in our advocacy and also finding those joyful moments because they're not they're not stopping. The right is relentless. And so how do we not let life pass us by? Yeah, that's I mean, been I, my week. That is that's that's a lot, you know, uh, uh, I know I'm doing all the brain things. <laughs> but I love what you ended on because, yeah. And I, I, I probably should give an update on Hobbes. But next episode, I'll talk about that fool. But it's funny because. Our kids are kidsing, you know, notwithstanding everything that's happening. Our kids are kidsing. Our kids are still finding joy in life, notwithstanding all the crap that we as their parents see has just been like this. What was me kind of thing that's happening around us? Our kids are kind of still able to find those moments of joy, find those moments of forget that. I can't even say find those moments because their lives consist of constant unbridled joy pepper with these little inconveniences of you know having to testify and explain to people what's going on but for the most part they're still living life daniel talks about ledge session like if it's like that shitty hot summer months that are coming you know he's like oh but like the rest of his day-to-day is like so happy he like gets in the car and he's he's like mom i found like cholo tiktok (laughs) 
And he's like, and I want to meld it with like my love of Radiohead. And so he's been talking to me about like West Coast style and like, oh my goodness, like alt and like goth and like cholo. And I'm like, do it. Yeah, do what you do. What makes you cholo TikTok is literally the best thing in the world. Have you seen this fool? The show on Hulu? Yes. It's like the best ever. Yes, yes. But you know what? We can't talk about, you know, Cholo TikTok because we got a guest waiting in the wings and today's topics to get to. So let's get to it. Let's do it. One of the highlights of my week was California declaring August Transgender History Month. Starting August 2024, California is going to devote the entire month of August to uplifting, celebrating, and acknowledging the contributions of transgender Americans to the fabric of life in that state and in this country. It's so exciting. I hope that one day all the states adopt a transgender awareness month. Dare to dream. It's amazing. Dare to dream. And again, it's it's one of those things where as more states do it and more states recognize it, a groundswell turns into a tsunami, turns into federal action to acknowledge it. So I agree with you, but I think California took an important first step and hopefully, as you said, more states follow suit. Yeah. Even just the conversation around this is like helping people understand that trans people exist in their communities. So I think and more, I think it's, it's more than that because it's an active effort to provide information yeah 31 days of information every year that gives people the opportunity to learn more about it you know black history month wasn't celebrated everywhere all at once and and some people still don't celebrate or acknowledge it but once it became a thing it became hard to miss all the information about black people because if you are at a florida school for example i don't know you're not going to learn anything true or useful in that state about black people you're going to learn some you know prager you version of black history that's going to teach you lies it's not going to teach you anything that's going to make you feel proud of who you are proud of your origin and proud of your history did i tell you about the year that jose fought with everyone on prager you youtube We don't need to talk about it. But every time somebody says Prager you, I just think about all the times he got like. Jose was out here virtual battling people. He was like, no, no, no. We're not doing this Prager you. Yay for California. Yeah, man. What else in Hot Topic? So California Democrats seek to factor support for gender identity into custody decisions. The California Senate approved the bill to this effect Wednesday. California is advancing legislation that would require judges in custody cases to consider whether parents support a child's gender identity. I think I read about this. The California Senate passed the measure, Assembly Bill 957, which passed largely along party lines. It had already passed the Assembly, but it needed to go back to the Assembly for concurrence with the Senate amendments before Governor Newsom signs it into law. Now, this bill would include a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity or gender expression as part of the health, safety, and welfare of the child. And courts must already take that health, safety, and welfare into account. And that's part of the summary of that legislation. I think it's so important for this to be factored in. I can't tell you how many families or parents that I meet that are in the midst of custody battles because one parent is unaffirming 
I think this, this is a great step forward in protecting trans youth who often are ignored or not believed in these sorts of cases. And I think it's important because oftentimes what happens is children are used as pawns in custody battles. What you'll have is one parent casting aspersions on the other parent or one parent saying that the other parent is trying to make their child something or turn them into something that they're not as if gender expression or identity is a is a weapon, is a tool, is, is a form of indoctrination or a form of abuse. And the courts are actively acknowledging that Gender expression and gender identity are inherent parts of who children are, and those should be factored into when we're talking about what's in the best interest of the child. So I'm very pleased to see it. Yeah. And I think, too, the more and more court rulings and the more and more policy that we get this way, the more and more we make small protections for trans people through case litigation actually happen right like through this the courts are setting precedent so i think it's so important absolutely so canada has issued a travel advisory against lgbtq people traveling to the united states now this is one of those things where it's just embarrassing because those travel advisories are issued for places like uganda or for russia or for Saudi Arabia, for places where the countries have an avowed interest in stamping out any type of LGBTQ anything. And now the United States has joined this list of countries where LGBTQ people should not travel. Stephen, it's so worrisome that our neighbor issued this advisory. And when I saw it, I was like, ooh, I need to get us passports because we're in the country. Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that mean for us? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And and I mean, I'm already getting my children their dual citizenship passports because they're Nigerian. And as a result of being born to me, they are citizens of another country and we can skedaddle if it needs to be. Now, unfortunately, it's not like Nigeria is like super LGBTQ friendly, but you can move about the world in places where they accept a passport and don't require a visa because Nigeria has those types of favored nation status with other countries that America does not, if you can imagine. And so, yeah, having a backup plan and a go bag is absolutely necessary when you live in this fucked up country. It's crazy that it's come to this. Yeah. But, you know, that that's where we are. Yeah. Lisette, this country is fucked up. Take Ken Paxton, for example. His impeachment trial just ended in an acquittal. And even though there was reams of evidence of how corrupt this man was, about the bribes that he took, about the favors that he passed, about just all the things wrong that he did in office, this trial ended up with the Republicans saying, eh, you know, we're going to let him go. I mean, I couldn't believe it was actually happening. And I had to, like, pinch myself. I was was like, am I in an alternate universe? The crazy part is that even though he was acquitted of the impeachment charges, the feds are still going to get his ass because all of that testimony that went in, all of those witnesses that testified, all the evidence that brought in is now part of that public record. And the feds can now just take this alley-oop and slam dunk on his ass. He's going to prison. Like impeachment, eh, whatever. He got away with it. When you have super majorities in Texas, there's only so much you can do. But what's crazy is that it was the Texas Republicans that brought those articles of impeachment. 
it was the Texas Republicans that decided not to impeach him, but it's also the Texas Republicans that created that evidence trail and handed it off to the federal government to be like, here, just like Trump got away with his impeachment, his two impeachments rather, he's not going to get away with the feds. The feds are going to put his ass in the clink clink. Good, because he's evil. Yes. That's an interesting segue for this next topic. A new study found that more LGBTQ people are running for public office. A report surveyed 474 LGBTQ plus candidates from 49 states between April 3rd and May 17th, 2023, and a record-breaking 1,065 out LGBTQ plus people ran for office in the United States in 2022, and 430 of those candidates were successful on election day. The most recent example of that can be found in Olivia Hill, the first transgender public official in the state of Tennessee. Stephen, I can't tell you how much this really excites me because like I said earlier, our kids are really just joyous. They're stepping up, they're creating a world that they want for themselves. And a large part of that is being increasingly active in the political process at all levels, from voting to running for office. This is so exciting. We said, I could literally talk about this all day, but we have a guest waiting. Well, let's get started with the interview. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with our guest today. Rebecca Miner is a neuroqueer femme clinician, consultant, and educator specializing in the intersection of trauma, gender, and sexuality. As a gender specialist, Rebecca partners with her trans and gender nonconforming youth through their journey of becoming and is a guide to their parents in affirming it. Rebecca is part-time faculty at Boston University School of Social Work and always works through a lens that is neurodiversity affirming, trauma-informed, and resilience-oriented. In addition to her clinical work, Rebecca has provided cultural humility training and consultation to organizations, schools, and businesses for the past decade. Everyone, please welcome Rebecca Miner to the show. Thank you so much. So, Rebecca... We introduced you as a gender specialist, yeah. which is a term that I'm sure many people, including myself, have never heard of before. So can you tell us exactly what a gender specialist is and how you got started in this field? Absolutely. So I call myself a gender specialist, mostly so parents can find me. Because I know that when they're, you know, it's 2 a.m., their kid came out recently, they're like, I got to figure out this whole gender thing. Who do I need to call? I'm probably going to Google the word gender and maybe specialist. Um, so that's partly why I call myself that in truly just to create access. It does have a complex history as a term. So I want to clarify that in no way am I utilizing that term in an effort to colonialize gender affirming care or to gatekeep in any capacity, but more to say that gender is my jam and I'm here to help with that. That's how I spend all my time and about really the last 10 or 15 years have been dedicated to gender and sexuality, but gender and sexuality specialist doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. So gender specialist it is. So my background, my formal training is as a social worker. When I went to college, I took a course called Queer and Pleasant Danger. And it was the first time that I had heard the word, like thought it was okay to use the word queer um, and was like, oh, this looks, I need to be in this class. So, and I'm so glad I was because um, it was the first time I was exposed to 
trans narrative that was outside of kind of mainstream media representation. Um, I read Kate Bornstein's memoir and was like, oh, this makes so much sense. And I knew I wanted to be a therapist. I knew I wanted to work with young people. I was interested in feminist theory and it just kind of all clicked together in a like, oh, I could just really help people step into the fullness of who they are and live their truth and whatever that looks like. It was a bit of a winding road to get there because at the time there weren't specific courses or, you know, we weren't talking about trans folks in the way that we are now um, as a kind of culture as a whole. Um, so it was a bit of a hodgepodge and I had to, you know, take internships where I could and get people to mentor me where I could, but ultimately got to a place where I was able to start my own practice five years ago. Now, consistently uh, work with queer and trans youth and their parents and caregivers. So to recap, SEO, it was SEO. all about the SEO. About the SEO. Got, it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? It worked. <laughs> but yeah, it, it really was like, I was like, how are parents going to find me? And it's the, it's the parents who are like have in a moment of panic and don't know who to call that end up there. I'm curious. Cause you like have had to work with people and understand the brain. What causes bias and discrimination, right? Like what is it in our brains? It's like normalizes this idea that the biases we carry really aren't harmful or hurtful as a society. And also working with families, you're disentangling that, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so like, can you give us a little bit like of like a science, like this is what is happening in the brain? <laughs> yeah, is no, that possible? That before. <laughs> so, um, I think what's often happening is a fear response. People are activated by things that feel unfamiliar um, or outside of the constructs that they've been socialized within. So when we think about gender, right, the, and I try to remind myself of this when I'm talking with people who are really entrenched in their beliefs that, you know, are in direct opposition to what we all know to be true, which is that trans people exist um, and uh, and gender is is not a binary. But when we think about our initial learning in life as children, one of the very first things we learn is there are two categories. And so when we are calling that into question, it causes a fear response in people that then it's like, well, if gender isn't true, then what else isn't true, right? And, and what a destabilizing thought to have. I like to think of it as an exciting thought, right? An opportunity for exploration of like, what else have I been just handed that isn't exactly all that? that we could really unpack and untangle. But I think that is most often what's happening is our biases are really rooted in the ways in which we've been socialized. And so what we you know, seem to think is normal because we also see that when people are then exposed to new communities or groups of people, those things can shift and change. But we need information and education. And that's often where parents get stuck is a lot of this is just new. And so it activates that fear response and also that sense that like, I should know this or I should know how to parent around this or be a caregiver because it's my job to know things and handle stuff. And when they don't have that, then it causes, right? So you go from fear to shame and shame's just when it shuts down. I have goosebumps because I took a training um, with the Neuro Learning Institute 
And we learned about the seeds bottle, similarity, experience, expedience, distance, and safety. And these biases that we have, they're, they're intrinsic. They're part of who we are. We don't always recognize them. And so it's very hard to unlearn them. It's, it's very hard to acknowledge them first, unless someone points them out to you. And then it's very hard to unlearn them because you have to actively work at it. So my question to you is, working with parents of gender diverse youth, who have their entire history before they had kids and their whole understanding, their whole worldview shaped by this, these biases that they have. What's the most difficult part of helping families with gender diverse children to come to that place of acceptance? I think getting them to a place where they recognize that it's actually harming all of us, right? It's not about your kid necessarily. I mean, that is why they're here. It's why they've you know hired me in the first place usually. But the reality is this is something that affects all of us, right? Like we are all harmed by the limitations of the binary and by the expectations of the patriarchy, et cetera. And so what I often find most fruitful is inviting parents and caregivers into a conversation about the ways in which the binary has not always served them either. And that tends to soften things a bit. Because then they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that wasn't fair when I was growing up and I had to do this, that or the other thing, or I wasn't allowed to express myself. And hmm, maybe that's making me curious about like unpacking some of my own stuff around masculinity or whatever the case may be. Although often I have to say lately, it's been moms who are tend to get more stuck. Um, And so I never want to I don't want to hate on the dads because there are a lot of amazing dads out there. There are a lot of amazing parents in general. Um, yes, Stephen. <laughs> you know, it's complicated. But I think bringing people into a conversation about the ways in which these ideas are really just that, they're ideas. We've been steeped in them for so long that we believe them um, and we believe them to be true and the only truth. And so moving away from that is is a key element. Religion is another really tough one. There's a couple things that you just said that resonated with me. I run a parent community over the last 14 years is around 300 people. I didn't start it. So I can't take credit for that. But But over the last, yeah, for the last eight years that I've participated a first as a listener, as a parent, and then the last, you know, almost five years offering support to families. I too will utilize that to talk about intersectional issues. Cause I think a lot of times people don't realize that like bathrooms is like the entry point of discrimination, right? So when we talk about that, when I first joined the parent community that I joined, I was one of two families of color. Yes. And so I did my like assimilation. I I brought my assimilation tool, but like tool Mm -hmm. bag. And I was like, I'm going to come in here. I'm going to use correct language. Like I had one mom tell me you speak so well. And I was like, thanks. I'm using my... I'm using my white voice. You know what I mean? We never talked about the fact that my husband was an immigrant waiting for naturalization. The things Stephen and I talk about dipping in and out of whiteness, right? Like in that code switch. And so the thing that I have found the most difficult post Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, let's say, are always matter and it's not over. But like in the peak of pandemic and post pandemic, I think what I found most difficult for me was having to engage in conversations where language was being misused. And Mm -hmm. you and I have messaged about this a lot too. Um, So have you started infusing any, any kind of resources or talking to parents about like, no, we too hinder a larger movement 
when we debate you know, access to public accommodations, when we talk about our discomfort with our child being trans, like, how do you move those conversations forward? Sorry, it's a big question. Oh, it's a great, first of all, I love the questions y'all have brought already. Usually people are like, what is gender? And I'm like, okay, we could have, we didn't have a podcast (laughs) about it. Um, But but, um, I think it's always a dance with that because I feel like depending on the context, I handle it differently, right? So as a therapist, I have to have a certain reaction to it. When I'm in a coaching space, I can have a different reaction to it. When I'm just a person, I can have a different reaction to it when I'm teaching a workshop, whatever. So I think when people are still very much early in their process and are like, I'm experiencing all this grief and all that, I try to hold that with them and be in that until they've gotten to a place in which they can see the ways in which they're centering themselves over the wellness of their child. It probably wouldn't be the most effective to jump right in and be like, stop crying, Sally. It's about your kid. Um, (laughs) We all know Sally. But even with like the word grief, right? Like I had, um, so I'm like a huge proponent of disrupting the grief narrative. I feel like there was a therapist in like the late sixties that told a P flag parent, because they too were biased. We're like, oh, you're experiencing grief. Cause that's what I would feel, right? All the emotional markers are there because there's a moment of disbelief, right? Like all of a sudden you're gonna, you're forced into a new role of like advocating for your child and all the worries around you experiencing discrimination in proximity to your child's ide- gender identity is like washing over, right? And so for me, I, I just envisioned like some therapist was like, it's grief and then you know, for decades, this term was used. And we know that like for parents of LGBT youth, it was like, I'll never have grandkids. And then like with the modern science, we knew that wasn't real. So that, that, that conversation is less so right. And now we hear it with trans people, like trans youth, like I'm grieving the concept of who my child was, the expectations I had of them. And so like, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of disrupting that. Cause I feel like that, like when we misuse language, we perpetuate bias. Does that, are there other ways of talking about that other than just using the term grief? Adjusting to change, right? Like something has shifted and that may cause an emotional reaction in you and that's okay, but that's for you to deal with, not to put on your child and not to center in the process. And if we want to talk about grief, then like, if we're going to get real about it, then it's like, you'll be grieving if you don't support your child because we know what those numbers look like, right? And so like Jesse Frieden and I were recently on an NBC segment and the question that got posed to me was about grief. And I did my like, I'm being a nice therapist answer of like, yes, parents can experience grief and I can hold that. And Jesse was like, no. (laughs) And just like, shut it down. And I was so glad he did. And I was so glad they kept it in the segment too, because you're absolutely right. That narrative needs to be disrupted. And it really is also a very white response of like, oftentimes for families who are like, this is like the first hard thing that's happened to me. Or like kids are too young to talk about it. And it's like, well, Black families have been talking to their young kids about difficult shit for decades, right? Like forever. (laughs) Decades, no, girl. Uh, Much, much, much longer, right? (laughs) Um, And so these are not new conversations. 
right? But it's very much like, oh, this is happening to me, at me. Like my child is forcing me to struggle in this way. And so I'll let people sit in that for a moment or two. And then I quickly shift to the ways in which that's really not productive. It's not productive for anyone, right? Because they're also not showing up for their kid. They're probably not showing up in other spaces and they're certainly not doing any advocacy work that's of use to anyone. Um, if they're sitting at home feeling like, woe is me, my kid is trans. So it's interesting yeah, you bring had... up, Jesse. You better stop talking. You stop right now. I just, wanna, I just wanna share this really quick. I had I had this woman write me once who um, offers support to family. She charges um, to do trainings on like how to support. She's in my area. But she messaged me once to ask me, like, Lizette, I have a family who's grieving. And I thought that we should do like do like a mock funeral where the child can say goodbye to themselves and the and it will allow the parents to grieve in that moment. Jesus and I Christ, stop her it. Back and told her that is the most traumatic thing you could ever do to someone. Why would you ever do that? And then I just quit responding to her messages. And, and I find that this is like, it's so harmful. And then I, I can't even, I can't, but like, these are just the stories that we hear, right? Around people trying to make sense and enable that grief conversation. Just, I think about that child all the time. I'm like, I really hope she didn't do the fake funeral because that stresses so, me out. Let me jump day. in before Lisette talks about her <laughs> life story again. What we're trying to do is focus on you, Rebecca, our I'm guest sorry. today. And the reason I'm segueing the way I am is because you brought up Jesse Frieden and the yeah. fact that you have been like on this, I, I'm going to call it a media movement with him around Ooh. Are You Okay? Allowing different types of storytelling to take place, which is where Jesse, we we had him on us, on our podcast and he was really talking about how He's focused on the kids. Like if you look at any of his portraiture, you're not seeing the parents. You're seeing a hand on a shoulder. You're seeing legs and torsos behind the child. But the focus is always on that child. Can you talk about the importance of this type of storytelling, even within your practice? Oh, absolutely. So I think, I mean, that's one of the first things that drew me into to Jesse's images. When I first saw it online, I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about the project, but I was just like, oh, this is a striking image that is really finally speaking to the way that I like to work with youth and families. And that isn't that like sad trans kid sitting alone in the corner, nor is it the like super like, look at me, I'm the mom of a trans kid. Like I'm somehow going to make this a weird like extension of self identity thing. Um, that goes beyond allyship into a, a kind of different thing. So I think that is the work, right? Like, yes, parents need support and they should get it and they should get it from someone other than their child, um, which I'll say a million times over until everyone is like, we've heard it enough already, Rebecca. <laughs> but the amount of harm that I've witnessed from parents putting that on kids is just, I mean, I can't quantify it, nor do I, should I. But I think Jesse and I are really pushing that storytelling concept to try to get people to see, like, this is the person. This is a mm -hmm. being that you are talking about when you're talking in high-level meetings about whether or not we should have a bathroom or we should change a policy or we should do a thing. Like, this is the, these are the young people 
that are being used as political pawns and people are creating and inciting fear around them when in fact, they're just a young person trying to live their lives, trying to be themselves. Um, and so I love getting to share those images with folks because it always moves the needle. Like people come up after and are like, wow, I, you know, I always thought there's no way kids could know who they were when they're that young. But now I see this picture of Ella and I realize who's eight and I realize like, oh, you know, maybe that is it. And it's like, yeah, cause you know, these kids now. So it matters. Right. And that story lands in a way that now when you hear a new legislations come up in the news, you're going to pay attention in a way that's different. Right. And not to bring us back to Lizette's story, but like the way you think about that kid who you were thinking about having a funeral, right? Like you still think about that kid and, yeah. and like, we want people to care about the kids and focus less on the like tragedy that happened to the family of someone being who they are, right? Which is not, a for those who can't see me, I'm doing air quotes. It's not a tragedy when a kid is trans, oi. <laughs> but that, you know, instead we can be like, look at this amazing person and like, let's focus on that. That's that's what we're here for. That's where change is gonna happen. So I actually have a yeah. follow-up question before Lisa jumps in. And because it is around this, this concept of parents utilizing their children so that they can be victims. And this whole concept of Munchausen by proxy. And that's an argument that's that's often made by just really made about parents that are genuinely interested in taking care of their children, but people are projecting that they're actually using this as a means to get attention for themselves. Can you really talk about that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of parents who are conflicted about the about really genuinely getting the care their children need because other people are saying about them that they're doing something harmful and it's all about them. How do we disrupt that narrative? Well, so first of all, the concept that that would be connected to Munchausen syndrome is just goofy. Like that, I know the parallel gets drawn all the time, but like, again, this is not like an illness, right? Which is where we see Munchausen's tend to show up as like parents who are obsessed with their kids kind of being ill. I do think there are a lot of harmful narratives that get perpetuated about parents choosing this for their kid or pushing their kid, especially when the kid is young right? Like elementary school age kids. One thing with teenagers, but like, I just got an email from a mom earlier this week who was like, my parents are convinced that I'm putting my child in dresses and I'm making them be a girl. And I wrote back in all caps and bold, and I made it as big as I could being like, you cannot make a child trance. Like that is not how that works, plain and simple. So sure. While there may, and there's always some, some bad apples, right? There may be a parent or two who's like, Ooh, let me make a big scene about my kid being trans and make it about me. And so then parents, other people see that and are like, oh, that's what's happening here with families who are showing genuine support. But the reality is genuine support is life-saving. So if you love your kid, you're going to do right by them by getting them access to the care that they need. And that's not and like inappropriate intervention or a choice or a desire to like make it, make anyone into anything that they're not. 
I think at the other, you know, the flip side of that is like the parents who are constantly denying their children who are saying, this is who I am. Right. And why we don't call, we're not calling out those parents <laughs> nearly enough and saying, you know, you're actually directly contributing to the harm of your child by not acknowledging who they are when they tell you who they are. So yeah, it's just a hard no for me. It gets utilized so often at the legislative level too. I mean, when we were facing an all care, like the all healthcare ban in Arizona, I actually said that that was one of the reasons why it took me so long to support Daniels because I knew people would say I had Munchausen by proxy. And then one of the senators mentioned it again and was like, well, that's a reality. Like there are parents that do this. And so it's really frustrating because they're, it, why would anyone choose to like lose friends and family and community oh. and like be discriminated against even further? <laughs> it makes no sense. Especially when you're potentially already marginalized, right? right. Like, like y'all are like, we already have to go through it on a number of levels. Like we don't need to add more to the mix. And that that's always my same response too. When people are like, well, is a kid like faking it for attention, or like choosing this in a way. And I'm like, why would you pick this out of all the things you could pick? Like, this isn't a fun, light decision to make. Um, and so no, parents aren't, you know, just like you said, like risking their own familial relationships, their own connections in the community, all of that. Are you finding that that youth are feeling empowered by seeing youth voices stand up? Because, and I ask this because um, one of the kids in our parent community on Saturday was like, we need to do more youth led events. And I was like, I love this. Like, there's so much more engagement. Are you finding that while research is showing that anti-trans legislation is having these negative emotional uh, mental health disparities are showing up in trans youth and non-binary youth. But are you also finding that many of them are being feeling empowered by the youth voices that are stepping in? Yes. It's a really, it's an interesting time in that way. It's like we are simultaneously seeing the worst legislation season we've ever seen before. There are more people of all ages who are speaking out in a way like that we have not seen historically. Um, and so I think it's a combination of holding both of those realities. Um, and oftentimes I think trying to focus less on the noise of the legislation and try to just be with the power of the people and, and especially for young people, like that seeing all the videos from the trans prom and like so many of these much more public displays of young people advocating for themselves, but also parents like right by their side being like, yeah, I, this is my kid and I'm cool with that, like <laughs> is so important for people to see. So with this, with this spate of like anti-trans legislation, literally taking over the states across this country, trans people are under considerable mental and emotional distress. Like what are specialists like yourselves doing to help these vulnerable communities or members of these vulnerable communities? It's a big question, right? There's so much we could be, should be, and need to be doing. I vacillate between wanting, like trying to create every resource under the sun and then realizing that that's not all, not sustainable. So I try my best to stay in my lane and take the best possible care I can of my clients. 
um, and then also dedicate my time to people in organizations who otherwise wouldn't have access to that kind of care. You know, part of the reason why I deal with a lot of like, and I mentioned the whiteness reality is that most of my clients are white and that is not who makes up all of the trans population, but it is who often has access to resources and treatment. So that's another reason why like Jesse and I are trying to get this project in all kinds of places. Um, so we can just get exposure to these ideas so that then I can also come in and say, Hey, and I'm happy to give a workshop or I'm happy to provide these supports. And I think, you know, across the country, I'm part of uh, a secret coalition of other gender affirming care providers who, you know, we're meeting, we're working kind of underground to do everything we can to ensure that folks are getting access to resources and care regardless of where they're located at whatever risk that takes, right? I mean, I have a privilege of being in Massachusetts, so I'm, you know, legislatively pretty protected. And so you know, I'll, I'm game to do anything I can for, for states where that's not always the case. Um, so I've been testifying as much as I can and trying, you know, on various, right. So there's the like individual support, and then you kind of step out to like what these more macro level things look like, and then really trying to provide more education for allyship so that we get more people on board. Cause the reality is like, we can try to hold and support trans folks who are absolutely suffering right now and are under attack. And the reality is we need more hands on deck. Like that's not going to be enough. Um, and frankly, they shouldn't be the only ones fighting for themselves, right? Like no, no, nothing has ever been won that way. So it's, it's a combined effort <laughs> of, I think, trying to create as much access as humanly possible. The other thing is I, uh, and part of Gallup, which I don't know if either of you are familiar with that. It's a, a pledge that, I don't know now, hundreds of therapists have signed um, to do provide free and or reduced uh, letter writing so that folks have access to gender affirming care. Um, that's something that's really important to me. I don't think anyone should have any financial barriers there, nor should they even really have to go through some of the checks and balances that are still required in that process. Um, so, you know, just trying to streamline as many things at where we can, right? Like we, there's so much that we can't control, but of the things that we can trying to make them as painless and as easy and as affordable and all the things. I've shared lots of your content, your resources, but what are like three of the most important things you think every parent should do to help create an affirming home and support their child on their gender journey? Ooh, it's a good question. And thank you for sharing my content. Three things. One, listen to your child. Believe them when they tell you who they are. And I think creating space for exploration to not always know, right? Like creating space for, for that gray area is so important. And I think sometimes, especially in people's gender journey, there's expectations from parents of like, okay, well, where are we going to end up? Like, are you this or are you that? And if you're that, then are you gay or are you straight or are you this or are you that? And it's like, hang on, we don't know. <laughs> like, this is this may be a winding road and identity is fluid. Um, so I think getting comfortable with not knowing 
is probably one of the best things people can do as parents or caregivers. So trusting your child, listening to them, getting comfortable with not knowing, um, and also creating community that demonstrates your values, right? Like you can tell your kid till the cows come home, we love you, but you also could show them that like, you also love these other people in your life who maybe don't look just like you or have relationship structures just like you, or, you know, expanding what's like their models of possibility, I think is incredibly important. You know, it's interesting you should say the last point that that creating community, because it's not quite as straightforward and easy as it sounds. You know, oh. you have communities of people, say in the South, say in Alabama, where you're simply not going to find a vast community of gender diverse people to align with. And as a parent who wants to kind of model that behavior for your child, it's easier said than done. What advice do you have for parents who find themselves in kind of these, you know, cultural oases where they're not in community with other people and they are not going to be able to necessarily model that? What other things can they do to be as supportive as possible, recognize that one day they're going to leave the house and to need to have that built up sense of self that's not necessarily defined by how other people are going to react to them? I think naming that reality for your kid is actually probably important too of like, hey, I wish we had some more of this, but you know, because of where we live, because of like my job or whatever, the whatever reasons we have for being where we are, um, our life doesn't exactly look like maybe how we, what we would want for you to envision. And so I'm gonna make an extra effort to expose the family to, whether it's media of different kinds, whether it's, if if travel is an option, um, it's not always an affordable option for folks, but if that's an option to just see different people and like know that you're not alone in that. I think the internet has been, you know, has its pluses and minuses, um, but in terms of queer community, it's been really revolutionary for young people to be able to, you know, cause some of my clients will say, I never knew an adult who was out, but they go online and they follow hundreds of people, thousands of people. And so that exposure matters, right? Even the books you read when your kid is little, little, like little ones, those can expose them to possibility and all different family structures and different identities too. Like you don't need to start later. You can start early. Um, but I think you kind of have to build it if it's not around. Um, and that's part of the work of being a parent. I also wonder how much of that is because we're cis people, right? Like, cause you hear this a lot about like the queer oasis, like where are they and they're not around me. And then you talk to like queer people and they're like, oh, I find people everywhere. I, I have uh, friends who are like in the South and they're like this idea that BIPOC queerness doesn't exist in the South because everyone is Baptist and religious is like not true because I'm like, yeah. enveloped in BIPOC queerness right and then I'm like oh that's amazing right or I just did a panel at the U of A and um a Chicana like asked like this isn't part of our culture and I'm like actually that's not true there's all these incredible Latinx organizations in our state like we have like national icons living a city over right and Mexico and Chile are actually more advanced when you talk about like 
gender inclusive Spanish, right? And so I'm also wondering, I think, I also think about that a lot. Like how much is it that our youth are isolated because we're cis people who we've only congregated with people like us, right? And we haven't had to find queer community. Daniel shared a story with me recently that was like, oh, there's a kid that comes to my school and was like, you're trans, so am I, but no one knows. And like this kid was telling him how he has like these transphobic friends. And Daniel's like, it's so weird. Our school is so affirming. I only hang out with queer trans people. Like, come this way. Like, we've been here and you've isolated yourself in this really interesting way. So, I mean, I think that's something... I think maybe we as parents should need to question ourselves because I had to specifically look for possibility models and like be that cis person that was like awkwardly in trans spaces and being like, can I be here? (laughs) Can I volunteer? Can I participate? And can I earn your trust? Yeah. Yeah. And it is a matter of earning trust. Right. But it's a good point. I think like we, you can, assume that they're and people think that about the south for sure i'm so glad that you said that because that's one of the things that we always open one of the allyship workshops that i do of like where do you think the majority of people live uh, of lgbtq people live in this country and it's actually in the south and people are always blown away by that fact they're like oh they're probably in boston or new york or san francisco um and it's like well yeah i mean of course but there's actually a huge population everywhere um and mostly in the south so that is the parenting win of being willing to get curious about whether or not you've contributed in some ways to those, like why you don't have that community, right? Like, I love that you even had that thought of like, wait a minute, actually, maybe it's me (laughs) or like, maybe it's us, like who we've surrounded ourselves with. Um, And I think about that as I think about um, wanting to become a parent of like, who's around, who do I want around? Um, Are we geographically in a place where I feel like our kid would get enough possibility models and, you know, visible diversity? Yeah. So one of the things you talk about a lot, I've I've watched a lot of your videos, I've looked at your materials, is this concept of resilience and building resilience, especially for youth. And as a person who's like a, a ACES certified trainer, Um, And for those who do not know, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, which invariably we all go through. And and the difference for most people who are kind of normal, air quotes are being put up, and those of us who are still kind of suffering from that trauma is the fact that we have healed and we have some level of resilience. We've learned how to build resilience. Can you talk about the importance of finding and building resilience in these communities? Certainly. Um, also, that's really cool that you're an ACES trainer. I talk about resilience and wanting that for people. And and at the end of the day, I wish kids didn't have to be resilient, right? Like, do I think it's necessary? Yes. But I think it's necessary because of the world we live in and the constructs we're still socialized in. So I just want to name that off the bat that like, this isn't something I want for people, but I think it's required when you are part of any marginalized group to bolster some capacity to keep moving forward. And I think a problematic framing of resilience, which is again, a very white centered one is that like, I should be able to do this alone. 
Um, and I want to think more about community care and how we can facilitate shared resilience, because I think that's that's going to be the ticket um, is not just like one trans person getting enough resilience to take care of themselves. But how how can how can everyone kind of summon whatever they have, because there are going to be days where you have more and I don't or the opposite, right, where you're like, I, I just don't have it today. Um, and Jesse and I check in about this a lot where I'm like, if, you know, how many spoons do you have? <laughs> um, and I'm happy to take up the slack on that. And that's another piece of, of active allyship is like, how can I step in when, when I might have more strength today? Um, but I think that resilience tends to come over time as folks get more comfortable stepping into the fullness of who they are and, feel like like Daniel did right to be able to take that kid under his wing and say hey you don't need to be like that like we've got friends we've got people like come come with us um and so there's an enveloping there that's like you know if you're not feeling strong enough to stand on your own today we can we can help hold you up i'm not sure if i answered your question now what was the original question <laughs> no that 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 actually answered my question it was really about like youth resilience and how to achieve it and where it comes from and what to do. And and in your practice, you talk about it, especially in the context of helping parents and families, you know, find resilience in a time, like you said, when you have to have it, you are in a place where there are 500 plus anti-trans bills. You're a trans kid who wants to use the bathroom. You're a trans kid who wants to play sports. You're a trans kid who wants to go to a doctor. And these adults are telling you, no, or calling you a demon or telling you don't exist. And so you have to have some either external sources of support or you have to build that internally so that you are not just bereft everywhere you go thinking that you're just some monster. It's it's just something. And again, as a parent, I want to make sure that I'm attuned to the ways in which I can keep my son from feeling the oppression, the the just the oppressive weight of all the shit that's going on in society. Lizette too. Like Lizette, I I I'm kind of envious. I'm kind of jelly because as the like facilitator of a parent group, as a person who's been in community with loads of trans and gender non-conforming people, like she has that community around her that her child gets to see these actual possibility models day in and day out he has loads of uncles and aunties who are there for him know him on a first name basis have known him since he was very little i'm very jealous of that because my son he doesn't have that yeah and i don't want him to be you know feeling like i don't want him to feel like the the future is going to be hard for him because he hasn't seen people that can help him you know, achieve whatever he's going to achieve. And I'm sure I'm doing my best. And I have people like we said, and just, I have friends, they're not close, but we still have people that we're in community with, but it's just like, man, it will be great. It really would. Hobbs needs to come spend like a week with me in the summer and we're going to do all the things. Oh my God. And yeah. bring him around <laughs> all luck. of the saga Good radical luck. folks. I want to just, I love you, Stephen, first of all, and you're doing an incredible job. And Hobbs knows that he isn't the only one. I know. It's so obvious, Stephen, even just from what you put online, like yeah. the, 
depth and intensity of your care for your child is enormous. Like I was like, I need to meet this man. I don't know what his deal is. I don't know what he does. I didn't know. I didn't know any of this, but I was like, I, I need to. Yeah. I also think too, like, it's one of those things where we talk about like red states, blue states, purple states, and like often it's in like blue, like these blue states, like your own, um, where, you know, Daniel's pediatrician, uh, who I love, Drew Cronin, actually left us and went to Massachusetts to go work at Northampton. But he started a clinic here and he said it's actually harder up here because there's no policy because there's state policy. And so you have state protection. So everybody's like the work's done. And oh, yet yeah. like at, at like this ground level, there's like this disconnection between, yes. you know, policy. And I think sometimes I'm like, Stephen, come visit me for two weeks. Yeah, I definitely think a retreat is in order. Yes. Yeah. I also wanted to recommend because like your question, Stephen, reminded me of I'm like, I love sci-fi horror and just either horror or sci-fi. And I read this sci-fi book written by Raika Okwai uh, called The Light of Uncommon Stars. And it's about a young trans girl and aliens. But um, just like unprocessed trauma, sometimes the tools of, of trauma that people say is resilience isn't, it's still survival. It was really lovely. It was like a beautifully written book. And it took me a minute to find the voice of the author. Like, you know, you got to like, you're, you got to read a couple chapters yeah. to figure people, but it was really, it, it made me think a lot. And so I recommend that to, if you like sci-fi to listen to I it do. and I to do. our listeners out here who may want to hear something that isn't a biography, right. Or that just kind of gives you insight into lived experience through storytelling too, like fiction storytelling. There's no question there. I know there isn't just read it. It was good. So I do have a question. I have I have a wrap up question for you, Rebecca. So, you know, we know you're in Boston or we know you're in Massachusetts. I'm not going to just say you're in Boston, but we know you're <laughs> in Massachusetts and we know you have your own firm. If people are trying to utilize your services, if people want to hear what you have to say, if people want to hire you, where should they go? Genderspecialist.com. Easy to find. There's that SEO again. <laughs> Part of the reason that I created the parent coaching offering was so that I could start working outside of my license, the bounds of my licensure. So I can actually work with families regardless of location, um, if we call it coaching. Um, I also have a course for parents called How to Talk to Kids About Gender, um, with the goal being that it's not for parents of trans kids, it's just for anyone who knows children so that we can start them young by knowing that there are options and giving them room to explore. So yeah, I have tons of resources, as you both said, um, some free downloads and all kinds of goodies for for parents and caregivers on there. And I'm going to be starting a podcast and I'm submitting my book proposal this week. So stay tuned. It will be for parents and caregivers. So that's amazing. Congratulations. And thank you for being on our podcast and for having the hard conversations about all the things. I think we could have done like a two-parter. We well, can. you know what? We can always have you back and or <laughs> you can have us onto your podcast when you get started. It will be one of those filler podcasts, of course, where you don't have anybody who's responded oh, to your God. various reach yeah. outs. You know, the media no. personalities no, um, will be happily fillers. Thing. I would love that. I would really love that because the parent perspective is so important. Oh, yeah. my goodness, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Follow the gender specialist on Instagram. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. I meant to mention that. You're so good. 
<laughs> Bye, Bye, everyone. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is 100 parents of trans kids who urge lawmakers to kill COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act. Parents of more than 100 trans youth and gender-expansive children are urging lawmakers to turn their back on the dangerous and misguided Kids Online Safety Act, currently winding its way through Congress. In an open letter, the parents said COSA, which is intended to shield kids from the harms of social media, would actually make their kids less safe and cut them off from potentially life-saving resources and communities. COSA supporters insist the legislation isn't intended to target LGBTQIA communities, despite contradictory rhetoric from some of the top advocates on Capitol Hill. Representative Blackburn, one of the bill's lead authors, conducted an interview with the Christian organization Family Policy Alliance, where she listed protecting children from transgender in this culture as the top issue for conservative lawmakers. The problem with bills like COSA is that they fail to see the unintended consequences, which always end up coming to fruition and are ever unintended. Like that legislative director saying that COSA and protecting children and trans culture are two different issues is lying. It is why Blackburn introduced the legislation, period. All of this other stuff is window dressing. Absolutely. And so this is why those outspoken hundred parents are allies of the week. Congratulations to those hundred parents. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Washington University in Missouri. Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, joined the University of Missouri Health as the latest provider of care to transgender minors to announce its canceling pre-existing prescriptions for puberty blockers or hormone replacement therapy. A new state law restricting access to gender-affirming care bars those under 18 from beginning new treatments. But in a compromise with opponents of the ban, lawmakers grandfathered in patients who had begun a medical transition before the law went into effect on August 28th. But a provision of the statute allows those who received care as minors to bring a cause of action against their doctor 15 years after treatment or their 21st birthday. Typically, patients in Missouri have two years to file a medical malpractice lawsuit. Now, Washington University cited this provision as the reason for its change in their services. And I quote, Missouri's newly elected law regarding transgender care has created a new legal claim for patients who receive these medications as minors. The legal claim creates unsustainable liability for healthcare professionals and makes it untenable for us to continue to provide comprehensive transgender care for minor patients without subjecting the university and our providers to unacceptable levels of liability. If the doctors providing the care are scared, imagine how adolescents who have now lost care are feeling. This is awful. This is why Washington University in Missouri is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Rebecca Miner, for joining us today. And of course, I'd like to thank my co-host, the incomparable Lisette Trujillo, for holding me down on these airwaves. Thanks, Stephen. I love having these conversations with you and getting to engage with our guests. And we couldn't do it without our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Please be sure to like, 
subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything we're doing here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Bye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.